Today on the Matt Walsh Show, some in the news media are claiming that the Gabby Petito case is only getting all of this attention because she's a white woman. They say that black men and women who are killed or go missing are often ignored, and they're actually right about that, but not for the reason they think. We'll discuss the real reason today behind this uh, disparity. Also, Kamala Harris condemns Border Patrol agents for using whips on Haitian immigrants, even though Border Patrol agents did not use whips on Haitian immigrants. And BTS performs for the UN General Assembly, providing yet another reason to abolish the UN Plus, 500 female sports stars come out in support of abortion rights. I didn't even know there were 500 female sports stars. And our daily cancellation will deal with the increasing trend of teachers coming out to their students during class. All of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. One of the best and most effective things that we can all do um, in this... Uh, present culture war and this fight for the culture is to find companies that um, support our values and support them. Uh, and that's what Charity Mobile is all about. Charity Mobile is the pro-life phone company because 5% of your monthly plan price goes to the pro-life, pro-family charity of your choice. Uh, when you join Charity Mobile, you're joining a company that's not going to cancel or censor you for your beliefs. In fact, they support and share your beliefs. Other mobile service providers are neutral at best when it comes to the causes you care about. And neutral is really the best you can hope for. Most of them are actively opposed to you. But Charity Mobile partners with you to automatically support charities, um, uh, pro-family, 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 pro-life charities of your choice. Charity Mobile makes it easy to switch also. You can keep your existing phone number and you may even be able to keep your existing phone. You also get excellent coverage with nationwide service on America's most reliable network. 5G phones are also available if you do want to switch your phone. So there's nothing to lose here. you got to switch to Charity Mobile and support a company and causes that you care about. Call them at 1-877-474-3662 or chat with them online at CharityMobile.com and mention offer code Walsh. You know, I've never paid much attention to uh, high-profile murder cases. Around 40 people are murdered in this country every single day. All of these are sad situations, some sadder than others perhaps. But the media wants us to be especially concerned about certain cases and not others. I don't feel obligated to follow their lead on that point or on any other point, frankly. That's why I haven't followed the Gabby Petito case very closely, horrible though it is. And for those who have been similarly out of the loop, just a quick summary, Petito and her fiance, Brian Laundrie, set out on a cross-country road trip back in early July. They documented their adventures on Instagram and YouTube. Petito made her last Instagram post on August 25th. A week later, Laundrie returned home alone with no explanation as to Gabby's whereabouts. Several days after that, he went missing as well. He was possibly captured on a deer camera footage earlier this week, trekking through the woods of Northwest Florida. Meanwhile, the body recovered in a Wyoming National Park a few days ago has now been officially identified as Gabby Petito. Her death has been ruled a homicide, unsurprisingly. Why has this case made national headlines while other missing persons and murder victims are relegated to the local news if they get any coverage at all? It's not very hard to discern an answer to that. Gabby Petito already had a base of followers on social media who were interested in her life. It makes sense that they would be likewise interested in the circumstances of her death. She was young, attractive, photogenic. The dis disappearance out in the wilderness, the fiance on the run, the additional details emerging like puzzle pieces, all of these factors make for a more sensational story. They don't make her death more terrible than anybody else's death. They didn't make her life more valuable or it's taking more tragic, but they do add up to a compelling narrative. And it may sound crude to refer to a real-life murder case in that way as a compelling narrative, and it is. But this is how it works in a society where people consume murder cases as entertainment. 
I mean, true crime, quote unquote, is one of the most popular genres on every streaming service for a reason. Even if in most cases it's only partially true what you get in those documentaries, if true at all. And this is part of the reason why the national media selects and amplifies certain murders and not others. Though recently, prominent members of the national media itself have pointed to a different explanation. Joy Reid of MSNBC echoed the claims made by many on the left when she pegged the Gabby Petito coverage as another instance of, quote-unquote, missing white woman syndrome. Reid, having never encountered a story that she won't racialize, argues that the media and the public only care about white people, white women specifically, who go missing or turn up dead. She charges the media with, quote, ignoring cases involving missing people of color. Let's listen to her. But the way this story has captivated the nation has many wondering, why not the same media attention when people of color go missing? Well, the answer actually has a name, missing white woman syndrome, the term coined by the late and great Gwen Ifill to describe the media and public fascination with missing white women like Lacey Peterson or Natalie Holloway while ignoring cases involving missing people of color. We have been sounding the alarm for nearly 14 years because of this. When it comes to missing persons of color, men, women, and children, our cases are not taken seriously, and no one is looking for us if we were to go missing. Now, if we're going this route, I could just as easily chalk it up to sexism. When's the last time that a missing or dead white man made the national headlines? And... If uh, anti-black racism lies at the heart of this, then why do white female alleged murderers tend to captivate the public even more than the murder victims? Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, Amanda Knox. Um, I can't name a single black female murderer off the top of my head. Is it anti-black racism that leads us to heap extra scrutiny on white murder suspects? And yet still, the basic observation made by Joy Reid and others cannot be denied. Black people are killed or go missing every day at a rate much higher than whites, actually. And none of them, unless they're killed by a cop, and we'll go back to that in a second, become household names. Here's a concrete example to illuminate the point. Two years ago, I talked about this on my show. I've talked about it several times. So you might know about it if you listen to this show, but you won't know about this case if you, if you trust the mainstream media for your news coverage. Two years ago, a black woman named Brittany Hill was shot and killed by Chicago gang members in broad daylight, while holding her one-year-old daughter in her arms. Um, the footage captured by security cameras is haunting. On the surface, the crime seems to contain all of the elements that would, would, would attract widespread media coverage. You have a young woman shot dead in the street. The crime is caught on camera. She dies while laying on top of her child to shield her from the bullets. It's a devastating story and a dramatic story. There are many such stories in Chicago and other cities around the country, but this one is on film. And even in a place like Chicago, it's not every day that a young woman is executed in the middle of the afternoon while holding a baby in her arms. So, so why didn't the national media show any interest in that event? Why didn't Joy Reid ever mention Brittany Hill's name? The very media that condemns us for allegedly ignoring black deaths is itself guilty of ignoring those same deaths. Indeed, it's entirely their fault that the deaths are ignored. They're the ones who are supposed to be calling attention to, to, to news stories. That's their whole job, and they're not doing it. Joy Reid has her own show on MSNBC, a national platform. She could have single-handedly made Brittany Hill a household name. 
and yet she ignored her death entirely. How can that be explained? And don't tell me she didn't hear about it. I mean, I heard about it. I'm not in the mainstream media, and I heard about it, and I talked about it. Why didn't she? So how do you explain this? Well, I think it's easily explained. The national media disregarded Brittany Hill because Hill was murdered by black men. The vast majority of black female and black male murder victims are killed by black men. That's why Joy Reid and her ilk ignore them, even as they accuse everyone else of ignoring them. They don't want to discuss those deaths because they don't want to talk about the perpetrators who caused the deaths. As it turns out, there are two major factors deciding whether a murder case will appear in national headlines. The identity of the victim matters, but so does the identity of the alleged killer. To pass the media litmus test, the case must be sensational or easily sensationalized, and it must also be politically useful. A white woman murdered by a white man fits that bill. That fits both qualifications, potentially. So does a black man or woman killed by police. That's why those names become household names. But yeah, we, we, we don't have, there, there are no household names that come to mind of a black man or woman killed by another black civilian. Uh, but we can all name several black people who have been killed by cops. Can you name any white people who have been killed by cops off the top of your head? Again, if you listen to the show, maybe you can. But if you rely on mainstream media, you wouldn't be able to. And what explains that? Again, because it's politically convenient. It's all about the perpetrator. But a black person killed by a black person who's a civilian certainly fails to meet this criteria. And so does a white man killed by anyone of any identity group. I mean, what? there, there are circumstances where a dead white woman can become a household name. There are circumstances where a, uh, a dead black person becomes a household name. There's almost, almost no circumstance where a dead white guy becomes a household name. It doesn't matter how he dies. We're not hearing about it. Now, rare exceptions can be made to that final rule. Every once in a while, a dead white man might provide political fodder to the left, even if they have to lie about the circumstances surrounding his death. See Brian Sicknick for an example. And of course, none of this applies to the dead white men who make the headlines because the media wants to mock their deaths, like the various white conservative radio hosts who have succumbed to COVID. But the common thread tying all of this together and making sense of all of it is the media's steadfast refusal to bring attention to anything that may conflict or at least fails to advance their ideological agenda. If it bleeds, it leads, right? That used to be the motto. We can only long for those cynical yet still simpler times now. Nowadays, it might bleed. It, it, you know, if, if it bleeds, it might lead. Or it might be locked in a vault and buried under the earth. It all depends on who is doing the bleeding and who is responsible for spilling the blood and how it all gels with the political narrative. So Joy Reid is right to call out the media for how it handles these cases. Her mistake was in exempting herself from that criticism. Now let's get to our five headlines. This episode today is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. You want a new podcast to add to your rotation? You're sick of all these boring, rambling podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. You want, that's, you want one that's entertaining, informative, and also packed with actionable content? 
Well, don't listen to this show. Listen to the Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. I didn't win Best of Apple in 2018, and I'm not going to win in 2021. i tell you that right now. Jordan Harbinger, he did. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Uh, no, you got to check out this show. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people from athletes, authors, and scientists to CEOs, political activists, and government officials. Uh, I really think there just isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. I mean, again, there's not a better podcast. Certainly, this is not the better podcast to listen to. Point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, and easy to listen to. So turn this garbage off and turn to Jordan Harbinger right now. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There is never a dull show. So search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B. I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, one thing I always, uh, I'm, I'm always telling parents, especially if you're a young parent, you just had kids. One of the best things you can do as your kid gets older is, um, is you know, incorporate them into the things that you like to do, especially as, a, especially dads, this is especially important because that, that's, that's what the kids really want. You know, you don't have to, as, as these days, we have this idea that you got to go out and you do these, these sort of these child-centric activities all the time um, in order to entertain the kids. But what the kids really want is they want to be involved in your life. They want to do the things that you're interested in doing. And um, the great thing about that strategy as a parent is that it also just, it can be, it, it's, it's good for the kid, but it can also be a little bit self-serving. So it's, it's best of both worlds. And so uh, yesterday, my my son told me that because uh, I haven't, you know, one thing I like to do is go fishing. I've incorporated him. I've incorporated all the kids in that. And so now he's at a point where he'll ask me to go. And so yesterday he said he he really wants to go fishing on Saturday. And so I had I told my wife like, this is what I got to do on Saturday. I got to take the kid fishing because it's father. This is what he wants to do. It's father son time. It's it's my responsibility now to spend the day fishing with him. It's not about what I want to do. This is, this is about, this is about the, the child. And she had no choice but to agree. So that's the great part about that. All right, so Kamala Harris has emerged from hiding, emerged from uh, the bed that she's been hiding under ever since uh, Afghanistan, or the bed she's been hiding in, or, or doing whatever she's doing in the bed. You never know with her. But the point is, she's out in front of cameras now uh, to condemn Border Patrol agents for doing their job. Let's listen to that. What I saw depicted about um, those individuals on horseback treating human beings the way they were is horrible. And um, I fully support what is happening right now, which is a thorough investigation into exactly what is going on there. Um, But human beings should never be treated that way. And I'm deeply troubled about it. The whole point is that we have to understand Haiti I mean, talk about a country that has just experienced so much uh, tragedy that has been about natural disasters that the head of state assassinated. And we really have to do a lot more to recognize that as a member of the Western Hemisphere, we've got to support some very basic needs that the people of Haiti have to get back up. These people are so evil. And the, the only solace we could take is that they're evil, but also stupid and incompetent. That's the one thing that saves us. Thank God. You know, thank God they all have double digit IQs at best. 
There's no evil and brilliant person. That's when we're really in trouble. This is just a bad person you heard from there. Because she knows better. Now, I'll say, Kamala Harris, probably an authority on the subject of whips. So, on, 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 on one hand, you might say that there's, there's a reason for her to chime in on this subject. But uh, she knows, she absolutely knows that this whole whip narrative is completely fabricated. It didn't happen. Have you wondered why, if you've watched the coverage of this, you haven't actually seen a video of any Haitian immigrant being whipped? That's, that's not on tape anywhere because it didn't happen because those were horse reins that they were using. And now they've actually retreated a little bit. You find now that the, um, the narrative on social media, at least, has, has retreated a bit and they've moved the goalposts. And now what you're hearing is, well, it might not have been a whip exactly, but it was, a, it was a horse reins that were being used in a whip-like way, in, in an intimidating way. Because there is one, there's there's one clip of a one of the border patrol agents on horseback, kind of twirling the rope around very quickly, uh, which is pretty clear he's doing that to kind of lash the horse to get the horse to move. But it didn't make contact with anybody, with any human being. And so now, rather than whipping and lassoing Haitian immigrants down at the border, which was the original thing we were told. Uh, now it's, they, they were using it in an intimidating way. It was scary. The way that they were moving the rope was scary. Hey, I say all this, we talked about it yesterday, but the truth is, I, w- I wouldn't mind if Border Patrol agents were at the border on horseback using lassos on uh, people who are trying to sneak across the border. I mean, that wouldn't bother me that much. But that's actually not, a, not what's happening at all. And she knows that. And these are the people that work for her. I mean, not for her directly. They work for the administration. And they are ready to throw them right under the bus. Send them down there to do a job, an almost impossible job. And then when they attempt to do the job, and uh, they end up on video and people are mad about it, throw them right under the bus. Destroy their life. Doesn't matter. Because these people are soulless. I mean, Kamala Harris is totally soulless. And we haven't even talked about the second part of her little statement there where she says that we, we have a responsibility to the people of Haiti. Do we? Why do we have a special responsibility to Haiti? Can you explain that one? And why, why are we the ones with the unique responsibility? There are many other countries in this hemisphere do they have no responsibility? Why is it always us? Why does it always fall to us? And, and the thing is, people like Kamal Harris, people on the left, they have no response to that question. Because the only response you can come up with is that, uh, is that um, you know, the United States is this especially virtuous country where the, right, the city, the shining city on the hill and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you're going to claim that we have a special responsibility to every country in the world, especially ones that we share a hemisphere with, then the only reason you could really give is that we're a special country and we're, we are specially charitable and virtuous. And that's where the responsibility comes from. And maybe those other countries 
You know, we can't really expect them to step up to the plate because those people aren't as generous as us. If you're going to make that argument, then go ahead and make it. Except that Kamala Harris would also tell us that that's not what she thinks about America. She thinks America's a racist, dystopian hellscape. And it is increasingly dystopian, but because she's one of the people in charge of it. So their, their, their narrative doesn't really make any sense. Uh, unless, I guess the other way you could go is go to the other extreme and you say that, um, well, we have a special responsibility to all these other countries because it's somehow our fault. The fact that Haiti's in the shape that it's in, all these other countries that are suffering and all the people that are suffering, somehow it's all our fault. And so that's why we have to bring, we have to open our arms and accept them. I guess that's what they would go with. But the other problem, as we discussed yesterday, is that she's talking about this um, as if all of these people who are in Del, all of these Haitians who are in Del Rio right now, uh, as if they, they, they came from Haiti, they were fleeing from Haiti, from economic and political disaster and getting on boats by the thousands and sailing up the Gulf of Mexico, docking on the shores of Mexico and then traveling across the desert west for some reason and then trying to enter through Del Rio, which is not what's happening at all. I don't know exactly what's happening. I, I can't tell you exactly why there are ten to 12,000 Haitians building a tent city in Del Rio right now. I can't tell you because no one's asking the question. No one who's, who's in a position to have the question answered is asking it. But what is very clear at, the, at a minimum is that uh, they're, they're not coming directly from Haiti. Okay? They're coming from Haiti by way of Central America, where, where they've probably been for years. And where they can stay. There's no reason why they have to come here. If they needed asylum from Haiti, they already got it. If they're moving again, they're not asylum seekers. They're not refugees anymore. They're just illegal immigrants. All right. The uh, UN General Assembly is in progress. And um, my guys, BTS, my boys, my favorite band, they... they uh, they were at the UN General Assembly for some reason, and uh, they, they played one of their songs in the halls of the UN building. And uh, they also spoke to the assembled nations about vaccines, probably. I haven't even watched the clip, but let's, let's watch some of this. Some of you heard the news that we're coming to the UN, and a lot of you were wondering whether we have been vaccinated. And I'll take this opportunity to say yes. All seven of us, of course, we received vaccinations. All right. So there's BTS for you. Oh, they're still dancing. Oh, just awful. Just awful. Uh, and they were at the UN. This this goes back. This is I, I could think of a no better argument for abolishing the UN than that. If with everything happening in the world right now, all of the crises that the UN allegedly would be 
interested in trying to solve. And yet, uh, and yet they have time for a musical performance from a boy band. Like, just think about this for a second. They tell us we're in the middle of a global pandemic. There's a crisis in Afghanistan. Everyone else. And, uh, and, and let's take a pause and, and, and for a musical interlude from BTS. Making time for that. Just need to get rid of the UN. It has served no good function, certainly, for, for many, many years. All right. From uh, the Daily Wire, it says, On Monday, over 500 women, including U.S. women's soccer player Megan Rapinoe and hundreds of professional athletes, Olympians, and college athletes, called on the Supreme Court to strike down a Mississippi law that would ban abortions after 15 weeks in most circumstances. Their actions come as the Supreme Court set a December date to hear the case. The women wrote in an amicus brief, We believe that, like themselves, the next generation of women athletes must be guaranteed bodily integrity and decisional autonomy in order to fully and equally participate in sports. WNBA players uh, Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird, who's Rapinoe's fiancé, are two of the women's athletes that are part of the brief. The, uh, The group argues that abortion is a major factor in the enormous success of women's sports and that women's participation in sports would be severely impaired if the right to access abortion is restricted. Well, just as there was no better argument for abolishing the UN than the fact that BTS is performing there, uh, maybe no better argument for abolishing women's sports than the fact that its, its success can be attributed to abortion. According to these female athletes, if what they're saying is true, I don't think it is, but that's their claim. Uh, where to even start with this? First of all, you see again how these outside forces are involving themselves in something that has nothing to do with them. Megan Rapinoe, does she live in uh, Mississippi? Maybe she does, but I don't know where she lives. I, I Somehow I doubt it. Certainly I doubt that all 500 of these female professional athletes live in Mississippi. So they're involving themselves in this, uh, in this issue in, in, in Mississippi that does not directly affect them. And of course, the left embraces that in that case. But on the right, you know, we are having, for example, we're having our, uh, our rally on September 28th the, at the Loudoun County School Board meeting, which you're all invited to attend in Ashburn, uh, Virginia about, you know, to, to protest their radical pro-trans policies that, that are, among other things, a direct assault on women's, uh, on, on girls' sports there because they're going to allow boys into girls' sports. But as I've been talking about this rally and uh, encouraging people to attend, I've been told by the left that uh, this doesn't concern me. I mean, I'm, I'm an outside agitator. What a, it's not my business to be involved in this. What am I doing there? This is about, this is Loudoun County. This is Virginia. In fact, I was told that showing up at a school board meeting at my local school board here in Nashville when I gave my two cents on the mask mandate. And they said, that doesn't concern you either. You're, you're an outsider because you don't send your kids to public school. Even though my money helps to support the public schools in Nashville and, in fact, across the entire country through the uh, Department of Education that I helped f- fund, as does everybody else, very much against our will. So that is outside agitation. That is a a case of, you know, you need to mind your own business. 
And yet at the professional athletes who do not live in Mississippi can involve themselves, file an amicus brief with the Supreme Court to try to control legislation in Mississippi. So you see how that works. And they've done the same thing in Texas. I mean, they do, they do the same thing anytime any state or locality passes a law or an ordinance or a policy that they don't like. But they, they see abortion as a direct attack on women's sports. And I guarantee you, if you were to ask these people how they feel about men being involved in women's sports and women and the, the doors of women's sports being open to men who call themselves women, they don't think that's an attack on women's sports. But abortion is somehow. This, as always, uh, is you know, the exact opposite of inspiring and motivational for women. Because once again, women are being told that if you want to succeed in life, in this case, if you want to succeed as an athlete, you need to have the ability to kill your child. It's, it's not going to be possible to pursue your dreams uh, if, you do, if you fully embrace your womanhood and your femininity and the full power of being a woman. And, and uh, one of the most profound powers that a woman has is to bring children into the world. What we hear from these feminists is that in order for a woman to fully be herself and be successful in this world, she has to reject, violently reject that part of herself. I mean, think about that, that, uh, that power, that miraculous ability that both men and women play a part in. The ability to create another person. But for women, and only women... They have the unique ability to bear that child within themselves and bring the child into the world. You are not supporting women unless you're supporting women in that capacity and encouraging them in that capacity. Telling them to reject it, reject it even by spilling the blood of their own children, that is not supporting women. All right, next we have, um, this is something that's been making the rounds online, and uh, then it ended up on MSNBC and also The Daily Show. It's footage from a news segment from the 1980s, and why are we talking about a news segment? Okay, this is from NBC Nightly News in 1984. Why are we talking about a news segment from NBC Nightly News in 1984? Well, because uh, it's uh, it's footage about a new seatbelt law that went into effect at the time. And the left loves this segment now because they think it makes some kind of point about vaccine mandates. So first, let's uh, let's watch the segment. It is a new seatbelt ordinance. If the town council gets its way, seatbelts will be mandatory for everybody riding in the front seat of a car through Richland. I'll have to detour the town to get to Kalamazoo. They pass a seatbelt ordinance, but I don't use a seatbelt. I wouldn't wear my seatbelt. I get caught, I get caught, I guess. Florida Highway Patrol Lieutenant Chris Miller hears it all when it comes to seatbelts. I hear it's uncomfortable. Um, it wrinkles my clothes. Um, it's not cool. There's no freedom no more. You don't want to wear it? That's your choice. Okay, so um, the obvious point, the reason that why this was played on MSNBC and The Daily Show it's supposed to be that people, the people in this clip are, you know, the ones objecting to seatbelt laws are a bunch of dumb rubes 
And uh, just like the dumb rubes who object to mask and vaccine mandates, that's the comparison being made. Now, it just so happens that uh, I, I actually, sitting here in 2021, I agree with them in 1984 about, and, and the year, the date of that uh, news report is, is interesting as well. But I agree with them on seatbelt laws. I, I, I actually don't support seatbelt laws. Um, not because I don't support seatbelts. I wear my seatbelt every time I get in the car. I tell my kids to wear a seatbelt. I just don't think we need police officers to be concerned with that. We don't need police officers. There's a lot of crime that they could be chasing down, having them sit on the side of the highway or the side of the road looking for people so they can scold people for not wearing a seatbelt. I think that's a waste of law enforcement resources. I don't, think that, I don't think that's an issue for law enforcement to concern itself with. That's my problem with seatbelt laws. And also, with seatbelts, if you don't wear your seatbelt, you are only putting your own health in jeopardy. You're not, you're not endangering anybody else. Um, so I don't, I don't like seatbelt laws as it is. I'm, I fully admit that. I, th- I think mainly they function as, just like many other traffic laws and the way that they're enforced, they function as fundraising mechanisms for the state. That's mostly what they're about. But why are we talking about seatbelts? I mean, we've been told that the comparison between auto accidents and COVID is invalid. I have drawn this sort of comparison many times in the past. Many others have drawn it. And we've always been told, well, those are two different things. You can't can't make that comparison. Automobile accidents aren't contagious for one thing. It's not a contagious virus. It's a completely different thing. Now, apparently, it's valid again. Okay, so if they're raising the subject, then here's a question. Um, how does this, this, this is all about risk assessment, really. I think that's the real comparison we can make. Because seatbelts and, and airbags together, if you, if you, both of those, uh, both, both of those precautions, if you take both of those precautions and most people driving in modern cars today, you got the seatbelts and you have the airbags, that reduces your risk of fatality by only 60%, which is better than 0%. I mean, it's a good reason to have the airbags and the seatbelt, but it's only a 60% reduction. They're not as effective as most people probably think. So you reduce your risk of fatality by 60% when you've got around 60% when you've got airbags and seatbelts. But you also, when you get into the car, and you drive down the road, um, you know, there's, a, there's a chance that you could get into a fatal accident, even with those precautions, and, um, and, and die. But also, you don't know if, if you hit somebody else, you don't know if they have their seatbelt on. You don't know if they have airbags or not. So you could, you could take precautions for yourself, but you don't know about anybody else in any of those other cars. You know, when you get on the road especially when you get on the highway, you're putting your own life in jeopardy. You are. And you're also putting other people's lives in jeopardy. Flying down the road in a a tin bucket at 75 miles an hour, if you accidentally hit somebody else, you kill them, no matter if they have the seatbelt or not. And so there is this real risk that you take. You put your kids in the car. And you have them in the, um, in, even if you have them in the modern car seats and everything that are like things out of a space shuttle, 
with the way uh, with how bulky they are and all that. You got the five point harness and everything else. And you could take all those precautions. But there's still a chance that your kids could be killed in the car. A relatively small chance, but not not vanishingly small. It happens to tens of thousands of people every single year. So you put your kids in the car and you drive down the road. There's a chance that you could kill your kids accidentally in the car or somebody else could. And of all the the, the safety precautions that you could take, it's only going to reduce your risk of death by 60%. So with the way, here's the point, with the way that we talk about masks and vaccines and COVID precautions, and considering you could only reduce your risk of death by 60%, even with all these precautions, it would seem like the people who you know won't walk down the road, walk down the street without a mask on, even when they're vaccinated. You know, won't walk through a grocery store without a mask on, even when they're vaccinated. For them, the risk of of contracting COVID very very low. The the, the risk of getting severely sick from it very 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 low. And yet they're not willing to take that risk. So considering you're not willing to take that risk in the grocery store or walking down the street, why are you willing to take the risk in the car? With the way you're calculating risk and the way that you're performing these risk assessments, what you should be doing is just not driving at all. That, that's the way you really prevent yourself from being killed in the car, is just by not driving. Or at the very least, drastically, drastically reducing the amount of time you spend in the car. But you don't do that. You, you don't even think about it. You get in the car, you drive down the street, and unless the weather is really bad or there's something that's made you especially cognizant of the risks involved, most of the time you don't even you don't perform any risk calculation at all. You just get in the car and you drive. You never say to yourself when you get in the car, well, here's where I'm going. The risk of death is this. This place that I want to go, is it really worth that risk? You don't perform that kind of calculation. You just get in the car and you drive. That's where the real disconnect is. If you're too afraid to walk into Walmart without a mask on, if that minimal risk of death, very minimal to you, especially if you're a vaccinated person or if you have natural immunity, if that is too great, then the risk of death in a car should certainly also be too great for you. All right, let's get now to uh, reading the YouTube comments. Who's rocking polka dot and flannel shirts without shame? Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Great. All right, let's get, uh, okay, this is from Not Important. Says, uh, quoting me, says, you can kill seven kids and not get fired from a government job. Matt, I don't know what you expected from a government that funds abortion. Yeah, I realized that yesterday after I made that claim that uh, government is the only the only place where you can kill children in your, you know, in your job, you can make you can make a mistake that kills children, like the seven kids who were killed by a drone in Afghanistan a couple weeks ago. The only place where you can do that and still keep your job. And it occurred to me after the fact that well, there is there's one major exception to that, and that is the abortion industry. I mean, if you're an abortionist, you kill kids every single day, and not only do you keep your job, but you get uh, you're you're commended and celebrated for it. Um. Vruden the Great says, something that's been lost, childhood. Matt, please keep them away from this toxic sewer for as long as possible. This is a genie you can't put back in the bottle. 
I commend you for being a good father. Unfortunately, your kids are in the minority. Yeah, and that's that's the key for as long as possible. And when you say toxic sewer, I assume you mean the internet. You can't keep your kids away from it forever. That's true. Um, eventually, unless you really do move out into the woods and go completely off the grid and decide to live that way, I think there's something to be said for that for that mode of living if that's what you want to do. But if you're not going to that extreme, and we certainly haven't, then they're going to be exposed to the internet eventually. But um, but the longer you wait, the better is the way I look at it. And you're, you're, you should be equipping them with the psychological and emotional and spiritual tools that they're going to need once they are faced with all this filth out in society and on the internet and everything else. But first, you have to you have to build them up. You have to prepare them for that. A lot of parents today they just sort of throw their kids in. You know, throw them into the deep end without teaching them how to swim first. You just throw them in and hope that they figure it out. Some kids do, but um, but most kids won't. Uh, let's see. And, and another really really stupid argument that I've heard when I was you know talking yesterday about um, insulating your kids from some of this technology and, and, and not letting this technology dominate their lives and don't give your kid a smartphone with internet access. One argument I hear in response to that, one criticism is that, um, well, your kids are going to get left behind because all the other kids are going to learn how to use this technology and your kids won't. I find that to be a really silly argument because for one thing, your kids are not using the technology. The technology is using them. You know, a, a child who's on their phone 17 hours a day, or at least on some kind of screen 17 hours a day, can't look up from it, can't spend more than two minutes without, without going back to it. That's not a child who has command over these devices. These devices have command over him. And there are a lot of adults who are in that same boat. But also, kids take to this stuff very easily. You don't need to learn, you don't need to teach your six-year-old how to use a phone so that they know how to do it when they're adults. Kids at any age figure this stuff out really quick. I mean, my, my, uh, my eight-year-old daughter doesn't have a phone, doesn't spend any time on a phone. But the other day I saw her, she, she picked up my phone and uh, put, put it on the camera and like took a picture. She, she was able to figure, figure it out that quickly. So kids take to this stuff. You don't need to expose it to it that early in order for them to do it. Amy says, I want an SBG t-shirt, but that one is creepy. Matt is not the baby in the gang. The shirt makes no sense. It makes Matt look like he has some weird diaper fetish. No thanks. Amy, did you think that you could come into our comment section and insult me and the, and the whole gang that way? I'm not saying that your criticism is wrong. You're actually completely right. But that doesn't make it hurt any less. And you're banned from the show. How dare you? Uh, E.N. says, Matt, it's pronounced Jen Saki. The P is silent, man. Well, we will we'll agree to disagree on that one, I suppose. Josh says, man, screw you, Matt. The Quiet Place was great. Yeah, The Quiet Place was a very good movie. Um... The fact that we now have to qualify it as it as a great film, and I think in comparison to many other movies that have been made over the last 10, 15 years, maybe it does qualify as great, but that just shows you the how the standards have dropped. I think it's a it's a good movie. 
But if there were if there were real great films being made, I don't think we would be calling The Quiet Place one of them. It's a it's it's just a, it's a good effective movie. Uh, finally, Charlie said, or Carly rather, sorry, I misgendered you there. Matt, I know you think all stories about kids saying profound things are made up, but this one is absolutely true. My second grade son asked me to buy him a sweet baby gang shirt so that he could wear it to school and everyone would be confused. We're clearly raising him right. Well, you certainly are. And uh, I don't even, I don't know if we make, do we make the shirts in child sizes? I'm not sure, but that doesn't matter. Congratulations to maybe the youngest member of the Sweet Baby Gang. Now a word from Relief Band. You guys know I um, am a big fan of Relief Band. I don't go anywhere without, without my trusty Relief Band because Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that's been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with anxiety, migraine, hangover, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and also motion sickness, which is my special plight, my cross that I that I bear. The product is 100% drug-free. It's non-drowsy and provides all natural relief with zero side effects for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to help relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it is available to the masses. How it works is Relief Band stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea, and then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Sounds complicated. But uh, as far as you're concerned, you just put the relief band on and you'll feel better. So it's really that simple. Ensure that nausea is never the reason to miss out on life's important moments. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive exclusive offer just for Matt Walsh listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code Walsh, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and no questions asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use promo code Walsh for 20% off. And also, the events of the past few weeks have been troubling, to say the least. The Biden administration continues to treat their own citizens like criminals using divisive phrases like the pandemic of the unvaccinated to sow division and bully Americans into accepting their tyrannical new vaccine mandate, which requires that any business with over 100 employees um, has to force mandatory vaccinations or weekly testing for COVID. And that includes the Daily Wire. But as you know, we are fighting back against that and facing potentially $14,000 per violation. So, um... If you want to help us in this fight, the best thing you can do is go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code do not comply at checkout for 25% off. Americans have been far too willing to cede their freedoms to authoritarian bureaucrats in the name of public health. Enough is enough. So please stand with us at the Daily Wire and most importantly, the rights of all American citizens. God bless America. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. One of the major reasons why nothing works in this country and all of our institutions are collapsing is that very few people, especially those running those institutions, are capable of seeing beyond themselves. They don't care about anything greater than themselves. They don't recognize that anything greater than themselves can even exist. They certainly aren't focused on the larger mission of the institution, but instead are totally enveloped in their own egos. This intense self-focus destroys every institution down to the smallest and most essential one, like the family. Um, The institution can't survive if everybody within that institution, everybody who's in charge of leading it, spends all day staring at their own reflections. Somebody needs to be focused on the grander, broader vision. Somebody needs to take the long view, a view in which they are not the central figure. But few people these days are capable of that. There's a term that's become popular in social media called main character syndrome. This describes people who imagine themselves to be the protagonist, the leads, and their lives to be some sort of cinematic feature film in in which they are the star. You could really just use the term narcissist here because it has basically the same meaning. 
Except that main character syndrome is helpful because it captures the way that so many people today tend to not only place themselves at the center of the universe, but also fictionalize the universe at the same time. They're the main characters in the story of their lives, but that story has only a tangential relationship to the truth. I mean, it's sort of based on true events at best. We could take this main character phenomenon and relate it back to the collapse of our societal institutions, and there's probably no institution that suffers more from this problem than the education system. The problem in education today, well, one of the many, one of the great many problems, is not just that so many teachers are intensely ideological, but that they're also intensely self-centered, which leads them to believe that it can never be inappropriate for them to indoctrinate their students. After all, the class they're teaching is really all about them. Everything's about them. They are the subject. They've been hired to teach history or algebra or English literature or whatever, but their real job, as far as they're concerned, is to shape the students into little versions of themselves. And all of this explains the recent trend of teachers coming out, coming out to their students during class. I've seen at least three videos documenting this in just the last few weeks. We played one several days ago where a high school teacher records himself in class as he called the students' attention to himself and proceeded to inform them that he is non-binary and his preferred pronouns are all pronouns. He is all things to all people, as the Apostle Paul once wrote, though in a very different context. We're not going to play that video again, but we do have two more. First, here's another non-binary teacher talking about her experiences coming out to her students. And she's uh, talking about them in response to a question from another teacher who is also non-binary. And here's what she says. You can be reasonably assured that you are safe being out on your campus. Um, then do it. Before coming out as non-binary, um, I would come out to my students um, every October on National Coming Out Day. I would use that as an opportunity for my students to learn how to receive somebody coming out to them in case that had never happened to them before. Um, we used it as a way to talk to each other about empathy, about connection, about trust. It ended up being a wonderful experience that I had with my students every single year. So think about what you would have needed when you were in high school or middle school or whatever grade you're teaching. For some students, just the knowledge that a queer adult exists within their, their world is hugely impactful. You don't really have to do anything other than be visible for these students to feel safer and more accepted and more at home when they're on campus. It, it does so much for students who don't have that in other places in their lives. For that reason, my classroom is one of the gayest places probably on the planet. Everything is completely covered in rainbows. I've got flags everywhere. I've got queer literature because I want every student that I have to know that being queer is something that I am proud of, something that is not um, a secret in my life. It's something that I care about and something that connects me to other people. I'll end by saying that for me, being visibly queer is a non-negotiable. I introduced myself this year with my pronouns immediately. It was the, one of the first things that students learned about me. You know, somehow the most irritating part of that was still the word impactful. Just an awful word. But that's beside the point. The point is that this pathologically self-absorbed narcissist enjoys the attention and self-congratulation of coming out so much that she does it every year. She has, by her own admission, turned her entire classroom into a temple to herself. The only thing that's missing is like, the uh, incense and the, the hooded monks chanting in an ancient language as is this religious temple of self-worship. Every day in her classroom, it is a chance for all of her students to join her in worshiping herself. It is a celebration of her own sexual proclivities. And she doesn't feel weird about inviting kids to take part in that celebration or forcing them to, in fact, because this is her we're talking about. And what could be more important, what subject could be more pressing than the subject of herself? 
That was also the approach of the teacher in the next clip who recorded a video sharing her thoughts after having just come out to her sixth grade students. It was important that the sixth graders be told, you know, who she likes to sleep with. Um, they really needed to know that information about their teacher's sexual behavior. So she was sure to inform them. So I just came out to my students. I've been wanting to do this for the past two years. Sorry, I'm like so emotional. Um, and I just haven't had the courage to do it out of fear of just judgment, mostly from their parents. But I had these kids in fourth grade and now I have them in sixth and I'm sending them to middle school and I love these kids so much and I trust them and they make me feel safe and I know they love me and it just felt right and I, I did it and it was so beautiful. <laughs> had so many questions which I loved they wanted to learn and they wanted to learn about me and they were so eager and a few of them clapped which was <laughs> so precious so you notice how this was a spontaneous and emotional video revealing her true feelings and yet she took the time to edit and add the inspirational soundtrack in the background I mean it's hard to think of a better example of main character syndrome than that notice also how she says that um they make me feel safe. That's an adult woman, a teacher, referring to the 11-year-olds in her classroom. And she says that um, they wanted to learn about me. And maybe they did, or maybe they felt forced to pretend that they did. But whatever the case, do we send kids to school so that they, so that they can learn about their teachers? As far as these teachers are concerned, the answer is yes. What subject could be more important than the subject of themselves? And on the subject of themselves... What could be a more important detail than their sex lives? See, they, they see themselves as defined by their sex lives, and they see the world as revolving around themselves, which means that the world revolves around their sex lives. This uh, mentality makes for dysfunctional people. And with enough of these people in the education system, whatever their sexual orientation, it makes for a dysfunctional education system. And that is why teachers who come out to their students, are today, certainly, and finally, canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2021. Roughly half the country believes that Joe Biden is not mentally fit enough to serve as president. A surprise Republican climbs the presidential field, and Ron DeSantis picks the greatest Surgeon General in America. Anti-mask mandate, anti-vaccine mandate, pro common sense, a really good way to strike back against the liberal establishment. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.